Well, good morning. Welcome to Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. I'm grateful that God has brought us together today. And uh, what a joy to sing together. Thank you, Brandon, for leading us in corporate worship and to sing the praises of our coming King. It's particularly on my mind because I'm preparing a sermon series at the beginning of the year on the topic of worship. So that's for Donna. <laughs> so it was a delight to just sing today. There's something unique that happens. I'm, I'm, I'm already tipping my hand. There's something unique that happens when we sing together, right? I mean, I, I, I love to sing in my private devotions, but when we sing together, there's something unique that's going on. So praise God. Praise God for that. Uh, one of our traditions here at the Gathering Church is that during the Advent season, we spend time slowing down, and we consider how the incarnation of Jesus Christ has changed us in the last year. Because if it's true that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died, he's the only sinless man that ever died. I read a quote this last week that said, uh, 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 bad things, only one person, only one good person has, has had bad things happen to them, and he chose it voluntarily. And that's the man Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then that reality and truth should change us. And so we want to spend Advent slowing down and thinking about that. How has the person and work and ministry of Jesus Christ changed us this last year? Um, so one of the things that we've been talking about and one of the ways that we've been framing this up is through this title and through this series called The Promised Son. And last week we spent time looking particularly at Judah and uh, through Joseph and the promise that was given to Isaac and that Isaac gave to his sons at the end of Genesis chapter 49 and 50. And this morning we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. So while I'm giving this introduction, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of the joys and privileges of my life is having a lot of kids. This is like my go-to illustration, so just get used to it. And one of the unique and kind of memorable moments of having children is that moment that you're sitting in uh, the ultrasound room and you're, you're learning the gender of your child. And so I remember in 2009, we had two daughters and we had not ever elected to know what the gender of our child was. And in a, in, a, in a moment of foolishness, they said, do you want to know the gender? And I said, yes. <laughs> and they said, you're having a son. And that's our son, Benjamin. And then I remember another moment uh, when we were sitting in the ultrasound room, and actually the doctor was there, and he actually hit the print button, and he just ripped the thing off, and he put it behind his head. He didn't even look at me. He just went... And he said, look at that. And I go, what am I looking at? And he said, there's two in there. <laughs> and I thought he was kidding. <laughs> and it came at a time in our life when we were kind of going through some struggles and, and, and so on. And I remember that uh, Chris, I think he was in Medford, and I called him and I said, I got to tell you something, but you can't tell anybody. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, we're having twins. 
And he just burst into laughter <laughs> on the phone. I have no idea what that has to do with this sermon today. <laughs> just kidding. No, it, it does have something to do. In, in, in Second, Sam, Sam, uh, Second Samuel chapter 7, God is giving a promise to David. And he's, he's promising David that there will be an heir. There will be a son. So I want to look at three things with you this morning. Let's read the text together, and then uh, we'll look at these three points together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to read verses 4 to 19. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan... Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, the people up of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I, not, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, Therefore, shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you, excuse me, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut you all, off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be Disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. We'll stop there for now. So, Father, we ask for your blessing now as we come to your word. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first point is called the incarnation. Their first point is called the incarnation, and that is in verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Something you need to know about this promise that's given to David is this promise that God will be with his people for all time. And he's giving a particular promise to this man, David, this king. If you remember, as we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, the very first spot in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the fact that Jesus is a son of David is very significant in understanding the ministry of who Jesus is. It's Christmas, so we need to remember Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 says this, when the angel appears to the shepherds, he says this, fear not, for behold, I bring to you news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you this day, in the city of David, is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. The fact that Jesus Christ is a son of David is significant and important to his life and ministry, and it's important to his identity. We don't understand the work and person and, and ministry of Jesus if we don't understand his relationship to being a son of David. Now, why is this significant when we talk about the incarnation, we talk about presence and so on? Well, what I didn't read to you was 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 and 3. These are the verses opening up to this chapter. 
Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now realize what's happening here. Israel is beginning to have victory and success over their enemies. They've defeated the Philistines. David is becoming a successful king. In fact, David has now built himself a house. It says that he himself has a house of cedar. He's had political success and so on. Things are looking up for him. David essentially says, it's not right that I have a house, but God does not. It's not right that I have a house of cedar, but God doesn't. I mean, picture the, the, the tabernacle up to this point. I mean, we have no record of the tabernacle being rebuilt every year. It's probably a couple hundred years old. Go with me, at least in your, in your imagination. It's, it's an old, tattered, moldy tent at this point. And, God sa- and David says, it's not right that I have this, this house with this, this, this beautiful wainscoting of cedar, and God is dwelling in this old tent. And Nathan is like most pastors, right? When you have a generous donor who comes to you and says, I would like to give the church a new church building, what does a good pastor say? Go and do all that is within your heart and do it. (laughs) Been there, done that. (laughs) But verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not lived in the house since the day I brought the people up of Israel from Egypt to this day? I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And this is, of course, the first point. God essentially says to Nathan and David, who do you think you are? Don't I have the ability to build myself a house if I wanted a house? But I have chosen to dwell with my people. I, of course, am the king of heaven. I'm the one who owns everything. All that you have, I have given to you, but I have chosen the place of humility. I have chosen to dwell with my people. And that's the first point of the sermon. It's pretty simple. He has essentially said, if my people are poor, I am poor. If my people are wandering, I am wandering. If my people are without a home, I am without a home. Sure, David has begun to see the beginnings of success, but this is not the end. He's got the foretaste of success. And his first move, and I think we all would be there, is to build God a home. And God says, it's not done yet. It's not time for me to have my house and place to dwell in. Because I'm dwelling with my people. And years later, of course, when John opens his gospel, he'll say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know that word there where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is the Greek word skene. That means nothing to you. 
Skene is the translation for tabernacle. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And it's striking to me that the second half of John 1.14 says, And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see his glory. We see his significance, his weight, his beauty, his magnificence in the fact that he dwelt among us. We don't see his glory as one who was built a house for. But in the ultimate sense, the word of God, Jesus Christ himself, dwelt among us in our skin, in our flesh. He lived like us. And that, more than David building a house for him, shows to us his glory. Because his glory is seen not ultimately in pomp and circumstance, His glory is seen in his humility. And we see it here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God saying, you don't build me a house. I dwell with my people. And we see it ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 verse 14, he dwelt among us. The glory of the Son of God is seen in his humility. It's also striking. We should push here at Christmas time. The beginning of Matthew chapter 1 tells the story, And Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Hold that. Which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Does that strike you as odd when you read your Bible? The angel says, call this person Emmanuel. One verse later, it says that Joseph named him Jesus. Why didn't he name him Emmanuel? Did he, like, is this like the first, is he just totally dense? Does he miss it immediately? Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And the answer, of course, comes to us at the very last verse in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is Emmanuel. His presence. It's the incarnation principle. He was with his people throughout their wanderings in Egypt. He was with his people as David was beginning to see victory. He was called the one who is with his people by the angel in Matthew chapter 1. And at the end, Jesus gives us the final word, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's the principle of his presence. It's at the heart of of what Christmas is all about. That God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ even to the end of the age. It's what we celebrate. It's what we celebrate when we come and we decorate our trees and we think about that child being born in the manger. We're celebrating the principle of the presence of God. Let me tease it out for us, what it means by way of application. 
So let me ask the question as we have been. We're doing application by way of questioning this year. Are you more present in the lives of your brothers and sisters this last year? If the principle of the incarnation, if the principle of Christmas is God drawing near and being present to us, we must ask ourselves, if we are the ones who experiences his presence, are we more present with other people in the last year? Presence is a, it's a powerful force. Just being present with another human being. Just being there. Job's friends got it right until they opened their mouths, right? They were just there. They were present. I remember uh, moments of presence in our life. I remember uh, when, when we experienced a few miscarriages last year. And I remember... Krista coming by and just sitting with Vanessa and them quietly just kind of crying and weeping together. That presence ministered more than a thousand words could have. Just somebody else there knowing what you're going through. Have you been more present in the last year? Or let me ask it in a graceful way. Has somebody else, has the body of Christ, has the church been more present in your life in the last year? The incarnation is God with us. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger and are all, all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weakness. He is no stranger. To our weakness, he is no stranger. He knows what it is to be depressed. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it is to be angry. He knows what it is to have his friends desert him. In our weakness, he knows our need, and he is no stranger. And that's the incarnational principle. He doesn't need you to build him a house. He dwells with his people. He comes near, he comes close. Point two, verse eight. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great nation, great name, excuse me, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. <laughs> you see what he's saying, of course. What did you do, David? You want to build me a house? 
you want to honor me in some kind of way, which is fine. That's, that's, that's fine. But God wants to make something painstakingly clear to David first. I did it. I did it. Everything that you have, everything that happened to my people Israel, I gave to you. You know, in a sense, he's saying that uh, all religions are not alike. All religions are not alike. Let me give you a scholarly insight. Uh, One of the ways that you can understand uh, Old Testament scripture and Old Testament writings and, and ancient religious writings and so on, they do seem to follow a similar pattern. For example, when we look at something like the Tower of Babylon, Tower of Babel, okay, there are stories of, of, of towers in a lot of different ancient uh, religious narratives, okay? But what's unique about the scriptures is the way that those particular instances are described. So, for example, in our text here, it would totally be normal that when a king had victory over, uh, uh, over his enemies, that he would build an idol, he would do something, he would give something to a god. So David's had success here. It would make just common, ordinary, normal sense for him to say, now I need to build something for you to kind of pat you on the back and thank you for what you've done for me. In fact, we see that in the, in, in the commentaries I read for this passage. It's totally normal for there to be this kind of inscription in Egyptian writing. As the Egyptians experienced and other people experienced victories, they would give some kind of homage to a god. And that's David's default mode. And the first reaction of God is to say, nope, I gave you everything. The default mode is to say that blessing is received conditionally. But Christianity turns that on its head and says that blessing is received unconditionally. The default mode is to assume. There's an article in the Gospel Coalition this weekend that says that your neighbor is probably a Unitarian Universalist. Your neighbor is probably a Unitarian Universalist. And the bedrock of being a Unitarian Universalist is you believe what you want as long as it doesn't offend anybody else. That, I mean, that, that, that makes sense to me. That's, that's what most of the people around me think. That's what my neighbors, I think, tend to think. That's what the, the, the average person that I meet in Portland says, believe what you want as long as it doesn't offend another person. But the God of the Bible here comes in and confronts that. The God of the Bible comes in and confronts that and says that he is not like all other religions. He comes to David and says, you have received what you have received by my hand. You have what you have because I gave it to you. You have what you have. Your people have victory over their enemies because I gave it to you. Not because of something you did, but because I absolutely gave it to you. Listen to Eugene Peterson. He's commenting on this text specifically. This is a brilliant commentary. He says, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David is riding the crest of fame. 
Having decisively defeated the opposition, he's united God's people, he's captured the allegiance of Israel, and he's heading towards success. And he may have begun to think that he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, listen, this is the point. He will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. If any one of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own action or importance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. I think Peterson's got it exactly right. You see, it's a rebuke from God to remind David that all he has is of grace. And what a rebuke to us this morning. What a reminder to us this morning that all of our lives, the last breath that we took two seconds ago, is utterly of grace from God himself. Because that's the tendency of the human heart. The tendency of the human heart is to create an idol. The tendency of the human heart is to uh, have a self-justification is a better way to say it. It's very challenging for us to have a notion of a God who comes from the outside in and saves us by no merit of our own. It is, to be sure, the most spiritually and psychologically healthy thing to happen to us ultimately. Again, our children, our spouses, our friends know and they ultimately thrive best when they know that our love for them is unconditional. One of the worst things you can do, brothers, when your wife says, why do you love me, is to answer the question. One of the worst things you can do is answer the question. The answer, of course, is I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. I don't love you because you're beautiful because maybe you won't be beautiful one day. I don't love you because of an ability, because maybe you won't have an ability one day. I love you because X, Y, or Z, maybe you won't have that one day. But unconditioned, unmerited love and favor upon another human being is really and ultimately powerful. We do it to our kids. Why do we love our kids? We love our kids because we love them. They love our, we love our kids because they're ours. We love our kids because God put them into our family. Well, I love my children because I, 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 because I love my children. It's a powerful principle. And God wanted to make sure that David understood that. Because there was the temptation in David's heart when he sees his own success, when he sees the kind of provision that he's now provided for Israel, he's provided a kind of protection, there's peace, there's not this fear of war immediately. Well, maybe I could do God a favor too, and I could build him a house. And God reminds him, nope. Remember how all this came to you. Remember how all this came to you. You don't build me a temple. You don't build me a house. So let me ask the question. As you can expect, 
Have you sensed more of his grace this year? Have you come to rest and trust in the grace principle more in the last year? So if you, as you look back on the last year, let's say you've had a successful year. Let's say things have gone well. The default is going to be we did, we did pretty good this year. But remember the grace principle as it comes to David. It was all of grace from God. It was a gift from his hand. Remember the grace principle this last year. And point three, it's like an early Christmas present, it's a shorter sermon. Nine and ten, again, I'm going to read it again. God is saying, I will build you a house. You're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, I will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build for me a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Hmm. Of course, Nathan, or excuse me, David here, when he speaks of a building, he's talking about building a physical building. I want to build him a temple. I want to build him a house. And God turns that language and he moves it. uh, And he changes it in verse 13. He shall build for me a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God's telling David that he's going to give him a dynasty. He's going to give him a kingly dynasty. Not just a house, not just a building, not just a place of cedar where God can be worshipped, but he's using the word house metaphorically. He's expanding its meaning, and he's saying, I'm going to give you a dynasty, a dynastic kingdom. The kingdom will not depart from your heirs. And later, as we've said so many times, as we started this sermon, as we preached through the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ is the son of David. The promise that's given to David in 2 Samuel 13 is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the true and rightful king of Israel. It's a dynasty, it's a kingdom, it's a house that will have no end. And when Jesus Christ breaks on the scene, 
and the incarnation as a baby, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise to David. Because God always fulfills his promises. He's building a dynasty. He's building a kingdom that's far beyond the scope of a building. You know, last week we said something about the nature of the church is not a building. Uh, the church is not a building. The church is a people. The building is just a building. This is just a place. This is just a house where we can come together, a meeting place on Sunday mornings to worship God together. How much more? David's desire to build God a temple, to build him a house, and God says, I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a house and a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. He's going to build him a dynasty. But second, I will build you a house. He's saying that death, sin, or time will not prevent it. Death, sin, or time will not prevent it prevent it. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come for your body, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. It's a promise that's not stopped by death itself. When you lie down and die, when you die, David, this is not the end of the promise. I will bring one from your body. And if we're looking at David as a type of the man Jesus Christ, How much more? When Jesus Christ himself lies down in death, is that the end of the promise to him? Because death had no hold on him. Death had no victory. He rose from the grave three days later, showing his victory over sin, death, and the devil. Sin won't prevent it. Sin won't prevent this promise from being fulfilled in David. 14 and 15. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. You realize what's wrapped up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14? How does sin not prevent the promise from coming to David? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That's substitutionary atonement. The promise will not depart from David because when iniquity comes, he will be disciplined and the righteous wrath of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God will be satisfied. And Jesus Christ is the son of David. Jesus Christ is the rightful king of Israel. And all the iniquities of the kings before him, all the sin, all the errors, all the mistakes, would not prevent Jesus from being the king because Jesus himself would be the one who received the discipline. He's the only one that could. He's the only one that could fulfill the prophecy by Nathan given to David. Because only a righteous man can atone for the sins of his people. Only a righteous dynasty can succeed if there's one who's truly righteous who is disciplined by the rods of men for the sake of his people. 
And drawing us to a close, even time itself won't stop it. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is your hope, brothers and sisters. There's the incarnation principle. He's come near. He's come to dwell with you. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. There's the grace principle. He comes not because of anything you did. Because but what he's done for your sake and on your behalf, even the smallest successes in your life are a gift from his hand. And he will establish his kingdom forever. And you get to be the beneficiary of it. Time won't stop it. Death won't stop it. And sin won't stop it. Because you have Jesus Christ, the rightful Savior, the true Son of David. Let us pray.